Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 20. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 8. At Capriel, Part 2. The two really remarkable natural curiosities of the place, however, are the gorge of Sotoguda and the Sasso di Ranch. Every visitor to Capriel is shown the first. We, I believe, were the first travellers who ever took the trouble to go up in search of the second. The gorge of Sotoguda, a deep, narrow cleft between overhanging cliffs, distant about four and a half or five miles from Capriel, is in fact the upper end of the Val Petorina, which here creeps between the lower spurs of Monte Guda and the Monte Foy. It is neither so narrow, nor so dark, nor so deep down as Pfeffers or Trient, but it reminds one of both, and, though on a smaller scale, is very fine and curious in its way. That the whole gorge is a mere crack in the rocks produced by some prehistoric natural convulsion is evident at first sight. I even fancied that I could see how, in certain places, the rent cliffs might have been fitted together again like the pieces of a child's puzzle. The length of the gorge, which wriggles in and out like a serpent, is rather more than a half-mile, windings included. Within this short distance the torrent that flows through it is crossed by seventeen bridges of rough pine trunks. So abrupt are the turns and sinuosities, that never more than two of these bridges are visible at the same time, and sometimes the traveller who is only one bridge in advance is entirely lost sight of by his companions. The torrent roars along in great force, and is echoed and re-echoed in a deafening way from the cliffs on either side. The gorge is, in many places, not more than twelve feet wide. The precipices, at a rough guess, rise to a height of about six or seven hundred feet. The scale, after all, is not gigantic, but the light and shadow come in grandly at certain hours, throwing one side of the defile into brilliant sunshine and the other into profoundest gloom, with an effect never to be obtained in either Pfeffers or Trient. We first saw Sotoguda on a showery afternoon when the lights were unusually shifting and beautiful, and all the trees and bushes overhead, and all the rich red and brown and golden mosses on the rocks and boulders down below, were sparkling with raindrops. A woman standing on a slender bridge formed of a single pine trunk thrown across a rift of rock some three hundred feet above our heads looked down, knitting, as we wound in and out among the bridges and rapids. She smiled and spoke, but the roar of the water was such that we could not hear her. We saw the motion of her lips, and that was all. Presently a little white goat came and thrust its head forward from behind her skirts, and also peered down upon the wayfarers below. The blue sky and the green bushes framed them round, and made a picture not soon to be forgotten. Most travellers see Sotoguda from Capriel, but it is approached to more advantage from the side of the Fidea Pass, and should, if possible, be first taken from that direction. Those, however, who are not equal to the fatigue of crossing the pass, may go to Sotoguda and back from Capriel in about three hours with mules, or four hours on foot. To go to the Sasso di Ranch, however, takes quite half a day. It is a very curious spot, and one of which the writer may claim to be in a very small way the discoverer. Wandering about as usual before breakfast the first morning after our arrival in Capriel, and taking the road towards Alleghe, I observed a strange, solitary chimney of rock standing out against the sky, 
high upon the sloping shoulder of Monte Mignon, about two thousand feet above the level of the valley. Seen from below, it had apparently no thickness proportionate to its height and breadth, and looked like a gigantic paper-knife stuck upright in a bed of green sward. A few trees and a couple of chalets nestled at the foot of this eccentric object, and scaling it by these, I concluded that it could not measure less than two hundred and fifty feet from base to summit. I had come out that morning to see the Civita, but having taken a long look at that queen of Dolomites, I nevertheless sat down there and then upon a big boulder in a flood of burning sunshine, and, with the help of an opera-glass, sketched the Sasso di Ranch. From that moment I was tormented by the desire to see it more nearly. There were houses up there, so it was fair to conclude there must also be a path, and of the view it must command in at least two directions there could be no doubt. Giuseppe, however, knew nothing about it, and none of the Pezis had ever taken the trouble to go higher than Rocca, or Laste, or the cross on the brink of the cliff about half-way between the two, where strangers are taken to see the view over the Civita. "'There is nothing up yonder,' said young Signora Pezzi, contemptuously. "'Nothing but an old stone and a couple of poor cottages.' But the old stone had fastened our imaginations, so one fine morning we sent for Clementi and the mules, and started upon our voyage of discovery. Clementi must be introduced. Clementi and the mules. Clementi is our caprile guide. He either belongs to the mules, or the mules belong to him. It is impossible to say which. One mule is black, the other white, and both are named Nessel, which is perplexing. Fair Nessel is El's mule a gentle beast, weak but willing, given to stopping and staring at the landscape in a meditative way, but liable to odd and sometimes inconvenient prejudices. Yesterday he objected to bridges, which in the gorge of Sotoguda was particularly awkward. Today he suddenly abhors everything black, and kicks up his heels at the cure before we are out of the village. Dark Nestle, being bigger and stronger, is assigned to me. He is a self-sufficient brute, one who, in the matter of roads and turnings, invariably prefers his own opinion to that of his rider. His appetite is boundless, omnivorous, insatiable. He not only steals the young corn by the roadside and the flowers inside garden fences, but he eats poison berries, chicken bones, bark, eggshells, and potato parings. He would eat the Encyclopedia Britannica if it came his way. L and her mule are the best friends in the world. She feeds him perpetually with sugar, and he follows her about like a dog. My mule and I, on the contrary, never arrive at terms of intimacy. Perhaps he knows that I am the heavier weight, and resents me accordingly. Perhaps he dislikes the society of ladies, and prefers carrying half-ton loads of hay and charcoal, which is the sort of thing he has been brought up to do. At all events, he refuses from the first to make himself agreeable." Both mules, however, do their work carefully, and climb like cats upon occasion. Clementi is a native of Caprile, and lodges with his old mother on the ground floor of a big stone house in the middle of the village. He is a short, active, sturdy, black-eyed little fellow, hot-tempered, ready-witted, merry, untiring, full of animation and gesture, with an honest bulldog face and an eye that is always laughing. He wears his trousers tucked up around the ankles, a bunch of cock's feathers in his hat, and a bottle slung over his shoulder. It is impossible to look at him without being reminded of the clown in a Christmas pantomime. Such is Clementi, the very antipodes of Giuseppe, 
whom I described long since. With these two men and these two mules we travelled henceforth as long as we remained among the Dolomites. Setting off that bright July morning for the Sasso di Ranch, our way lies at first in the direction of Rocca. The path, however, turns aside at the ruins of the old municipal palace, and bears away to the right, striking up at once through the fir woods, which on this side clothe the lower slopes of the Monte Mignon. Thus, in an alternating shade and sunshine, it winds and mounts as far as the cross, a point of view on the giddy edge of an abrupt precipice facing the south. The cliff here goes down sheer to the valley, a thousand feet or more, and Clementi tells how the cross was put there, not to mark the point of view for Messieurs les étrangers, but to commemorate the death of a poor little goat-herd only eleven years of age, who, going in search of a stray kid, fell over, and was dashed to pieces before he reached the bottom. The view from here is fine, considering at what a moderate elevation we stand. The Civita rises before us, grandly displayed, five valleys open away beneath our feet, and the slated roofs of Capriel and Rocca glisten in the morning sunshine hundreds of feet below. A greenish-blue corner of the lake gleams just beyond the last curve of the Val de Leghi, while, between that point and this, there extend, distance beyond distance, the fir-woods, the pastures, and the young corn-slopes of Monte Pesa. From hence a better path winds round toward the northeast in the direction of Laste, a small white village on a mountain ledge high above the valley, looking straight over towards Buchenstein. From here the grey old castle on its pedestal of crag, the green valley of Andres, and the mountains of the Tresassi Pass are all visible. But the main feature of the view on this side is the Pelmo, just as the main feature of the view on the other side is the Civita. Seen through a gap in the mountains, it rises magnificently against the horizon, looking more than ever like a gigantic fortress. I have called the Civita the Queen of Dolomites, and so, in like manner, I would call the Pelmo king. The one is all grace and symmetry, the other all massiveness and strength. It is possible to associate the idea of fragility with the Civita. It is possible to conceive how that exquisite perpendicular screen, with its thousands of slender pilasters and pinnacles, might be shivered by any great convulsion of nature. But the Pelmo looks as if rooted in the heart of the great globe itself, immovable till the day of the last disruption. For a distant view, this of the Pelmo from near Laste on Mount Mignon is the grandest with which I am acquainted. From this point we next struck up across a green slope wooded like an English park, and so came out upon another path, steep and stony and glaring, which led to the cottages that I had seen from the valley. A woman scouring a brass pan at the spring, and two others turning the yellow flax upon the hillside, stopped in their work to stare in speechless wonder. The children shouted and ran indoors as if we were goblins. We stayed a moment at the spring to fill our water-flasks and let the mules drink. "'Have you never seen any ladies up here before?' laughed Clementi. "'Never,' said one of the women, throwing up her hands emphatically. "'Never! What have they come for?' We explained that our object was to see and sketch the sasso up yonder. "'Il sasso?' she repeated, half incredulously. "'Il sasso?' She evidently thought us quite demented. Another bit of rough path, another turn, and the great paper-knife rock, like a huge, solitary men here, is nodding over our heads. 
It looks even bigger than I had expected, bigger and thinner, but also more shapeless and less interesting. It is a marvel that the first high wind should not blow it down instantly, but then it had this effect from below. Don't you think we have taken a great deal of trouble for nothing? says L in a tone of disappointment. I would not acknowledge it for worlds, but I have been thinking so myself for some minutes. I push on, however, turn another corner, and arriving at the top of the call, come suddenly upon a most unexpected and fantastic scene, a scene as of a mountain in ruins. For not only is the whole appearance of the Sasso changed in the strangest way by being seen in profile, but behind the ridge on which the Sasso stands there is revealed a vast circular amphitheater, like the crater of an extinct volcano, strewn with rent crags, precipices riven from top to bottom, and enormous fragments of rock, many of which are at least as big as the clock tower at Westminster. All these are piled one upon another in the wildest confusion. All are prostrate, save one gigantic needle which stands upright in the midst of the circle, like an iceberg turned to stone. What was the nature of this great catastrophe, and when did it happen? It could not have been a bergfall, for the mountain slopes above are all grassy alp, and the very summit of Monte Mignon is a space of level pasture. It could not have been an eruption, for these fragments are pure dolomite limestone, and dolomite, it is now agreed, is not volcanic. Unable even to form a guess as to the cause of this great ruin, I can only say that, to my unscientific eyes, it looks exactly as if a volcano had burst up beneath a dolomite summit and blown it into a thousand fragments like a mine. End of section 20